fear was holding me back, and I literally came up with a metaphor at that time that I've used ever since. I said, run through the fire. Because I knew I had survival strengths, and if I could just run through the fire, I'd be on the other side of that fire line, my survival strengths would take over, and great and wonderful things would happen because I'd be feeding the learner in me. And later in my career, as I would face other situations like that where I could recognize maybe fear was holding me back, I would literally tell myself, just run through the fire. Great things are going to happen when you're on the other side. From Gianni Media, it's Fear is a Liar, a show about rising and established professionals and entrepreneurs. All the fears they face related to risk, self-doubt, failure, unknowns, and much more. We take a deep dive into what didn't work and how they dealt with it. I'm Ronnie Gianni, and on today's show, we hear how one man's competitive spirit and a love of learning push him to leave his role at a Fortune Top 10 and forge his way into the world of startups. In today's competitive and evolving market, there's not much loyalty between employees and the businesses they work for. But when Gordon Doherty entered the workforce in the 80s, the relationship between employees and their companies was very different. Fresh from earning his computer science degree from Baylor University, he got a job working at IBM, a tech giant with billions in revenue. Gordon thought his career path was on cruise control with a legacy company that valued loyalty and hard work. But instead of rising through the ranks to retire after several decades at this one company, his path diverged in ways he could have never imagined. Today, He's the co-founder and president of The Capital Factory, one of the most active startup accelerators in the state of Texas. Through each job shift and countless advancements, his journey sheds light on how to lead through rough waters and face a difficult work-life balance. In this episode, Gordon shares how he harnessed his competitive nature and created a healthy balance with fear unlocking mental strength and ability to stay calm in crisis along the way. Well, I grew up in a small town in Texas, a town called Bay City, a town of about 10,000 people. We had uh, one high school. It's a one high school town. Took a love of computers when the first personal computer showed up in my sophomore high school math class fell in love with it and decided that's what I was going to do. So I was one of those unusual high schoolers that figured out what they wanted to do for the rest of their life, you know, when they were in high school. So shortly after college, uh, you got right into the computing industry by joining IBM and uh, Compaq for like the next 10 years, about a decade you spent there. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about your time there and what sorts of challenges you faced as like a, a young professional at that time? So IBM, people now know IBM is a big company, very well recognized. What they don't know is in the late 80s when I joined, IBM was the behemoth in tech. IBM then was just like saying Google or Facebook or, you know, one of those names. And so, um, you know, I was very fortunate the first job in my career to work for such a company like that. It was doing so well, but they went through some tough times. I mean, the industry changed dramatically. I mean, IBM's uh, gross profit changed a lot, and so they had to start doing some cuts uh, in around 1990 and in the early 90s. When I joined IBM, they had what was called full employment. What does that mean? 
means if you don't do something really stupid or something illegal, you have a job. You keep your job. It kind of sounds crazy in this day and age, but because of that, people that work for IBM, they just hired on and knew that that's what they were going to do for 30 or 35 years and retire. That's stability. Well, you don't think of that today. I mean, there's almost no company that today you would graduate from college and think, I'm I'm going to work for that company for 35 years and retire. But when I did, yeah, I was an IBMer for life. So when IBM started having some financial troubles and started, you know, having programs for early retirement and then even the first layoff in about 1993, it was a total shock for me. It was like, I, I wasn't worried about a job. I was a very high performer, high flyer in IBM. I wasn't worried about getting fired or laid off. It just dramatically changed everything for me. Mm. Um, it was like so, a wake-up call, so to speak. It was a wake-up call, and in a way, I felt not violated, but it was kind of like that. The two-way loyalty was lost, right? Mm. I was 100% loyal to this company, and now this company, because of financial reasons, was not able to reciprocate the loyalty to every employee. And some good employees got let go. My wife, she and I were engaged. She got laid off because IBM made a decision to cut a whole function out of its organization. And it was just a real shock for me. It was like an eye-opening experience, and it's the first time I actually even thought about going to work for another company. And as it was, Compaq was that company. Were you, were you afraid of what was to come of the industry and for your future career that you had thought was already set? It wasn't, there was no personal fear. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've always had extreme levels of confidence uh, in myself. I was a highly competitive athlete, uh, a swimmer when I was young. I, I almost qualified for the Olympic trials when I was very young. So I had that goal setting drive and this confidence that you need in order to you know, work out four and a half hours every day and compete and win and lose and all of that. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't as much about me. It was just more this shattering of this vision that um, that I had to readjust. And uh, even just deciding to go interview at Compaq, I felt in this, this disloyalty. It was weird. I was like, man, this company, I'm, I'm letting them down. So there was, there was definitely a fear factor on deciding to jump from this thing that I just had this vision for the rest of my career. And and Compaq wooed me. I mean, it was it was, the role was very interesting. The huge jump in compensation was very interesting. My wife and I had had our our third daughter, so it was the right time. I almost I almost had no choice but to say yes to that. And, and in a way, that was very helpful because it broke me out of that mold that I was in for the first time. And you were like in your mid to late twenties at that time. I would have been about uh, twenty eight uh, or so, twenty eight to thirty. Yeah. Gotcha. So you're you've been a rising star at IBM. Things kind of go sideways financially for the company. You have this awkward sense of leaving them behind, even though you know that it might just happen to you anyways. Mm-hmm. And you, in the midst of it, y'all have three three daughters. Yes. In the midst of it, and, and I'm assuming you were working all day every day for the most part. I was. I mean, in those days. It was it was full time job, but that didn't mean seventy hour days. That you know, in, in other parts of my career, you know, maybe we'll talk about it, it. It dialed up to crazy. I wouldn't call it crazy, but yes, it was it was very busy. And with three kids and whatnot, you know, my my, my pay raise was enough. And with three kids, uh, my wife decided to to stop working, and financially we were able to do that. But that it created another burden. I mean, then we were a one. Uh, one income household with me at 29, 30 years old, uh, had a house with the mortgage and all that. Yeah, it was, it was a little bit stressful for sure. We'll get right back to Gordon in just a bit, where we learn what drives him to make a risky and major change in his career path. 
we also learn how that same drive pushes him to, well, in his own words, run through fire, time and time again. That's coming up. Stay with us. I'm Ron Gowney, and you're listening to Fear is a Liar from Gowney Media. So after like a decade uh, of time that you spent between IBM and then Compaq, you may, you decide to make a major shift in your career and decide to go to the startup sort of uh, high growth opportunity as opposed to this uh, stability that you had at these firms from IBM to Compaq. What made you do that? What interests you about going into video conferencing? So a boss that I had worked for my last job at IBM uh, stayed in Austin, and he went into that first video conferencing company, the company Vitel. Um, uh, when I left Austin to go to Houston, I really didn't want to leave Austin. Austin is a very special place. So I looked in my rearview mirror with my wife and said, we'll be back. It's just a matter of time. So in a short two years in Compaq, I learned a lot. I, was, I learned to be a first-line manager. I learned about marketing. I learned all kinds of things. But when this former boss called me and said, hey, I have an opportunity inside this $100 million company, which I know sounds like a, a big company to, to, to a lot of people, but when you go from a $70 billion company down to $15 billion, then down to $100 million, it seems a lot smaller. Absolutely. A lot more nimble, a lot more flexible, a lot more vibrant lot of action, your ability to, you know, have an effect on the outcomes. And the fact that my boss was there, that was just really exciting. And it got me back to Austin. So you see, I, I just kept going smaller, 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 um, opportunistically, it was not part of some grand plan. And from there, after a couple of years, I went to a $5 million video conferencing company, an Israeli headquartered company. Called and, uh, Vcon. That was the Vcon days. And so the international headquarters and much smaller, that was just a whole other experience. But what was it that triggered you to actually leave the computing industry after a decade spent behind and not only get into a completely different industry and a whole different line of work mm -hmm. for a company on a much smaller scale, but to take that leap and that risk, in my mind, to, to, to go kind of, so to speak, backwards, some people might have defined it as, or, or any examples you might have of people that might have given you advice at the time. Yeah. So this is really something important that I learned about myself along the way. Uh, there was a book that was called Now Discover Your Strengths. The, the, the second edition is called Strengths Finder 2.0. I learned later in my career after reading that book and going through the online assessment that my number one strength is learner. What drives me is the learner in me. A strength is different than a skill. You can develop a skill, but a strength is more like a personality. You can't change your personality. You can try and disguise it at moments, but your personality is your personality. My number one strength is learner. Learners, when they feel like they've mastered or mostly mastered something, kind of lose interest, and then they need to be driven by learning again. So leaving the computing industry and going into video conferencing, I had spent 10 years in, in, in computing. What else was I going to learn about computing? I could, I could have advanced in my career for sure, but I would not have been driving the learner in me. Mm. Push the reset button, jump into video conferencing. Wow, the learner in me was just going off the charts. And that's, as I later started learning a little bit about fear and how fear drives me and was holding me back, I learned that it was that learner in, in me that drove me over the edge of that fear. Hmm. So you went ahead and went for it. I went for it anyway. The, the learner, the desire to learn overcame 
that influence of fear. Fear, actually, I, I also realized later in my career, fear was a very important factor in my life. It didn't dramatically hold me back because of some of these other overpowering characteristics and personality traits and strengths. Um, but presented with the opportunity to go run the Israeli technology company as, as president, I was a senior executive and then president. I'd never worked for an, a foreign headquartered company, a $5 million company. I could tell it was fragile. It you know, could have crashed and burned. I mean, very risky. And as I thought about it, the learner in me was just going crazy. I mean, international experience and the role. I was like, yes, yes, yes. But the fear was holding me back. And I literally came up with a metaphor at that time that I've used ever since. I said, run through the fire. Because I knew I had survival strengths, and if I could just run through the fire, I'd be on the other side of that fire line. My survival strengths would take over, and great and wonderful things would happen because I'd be feeding the learner in me. And later in my career, as I would face other situations like that where I could recognize maybe fear was holding me back, I would literally tell myself, just run through the fire. Great things are going to happen when you're on the other side. Uh, th that's th that's amazing. I mean, I think that also it's really important to note that at that point you're 28, 29 years old approximately. You have this burning self-awareness of how to embrace that fear that you're describing, you know, so well right now. And I think that very rarely do you find individuals in any field in any business who have that at an early age. And I think you were kind of not only molding yourself through those moments and learning how to get there during your time in the computing industry, but I think you started with a fundamental uh, basis when you became an athlete early on before you even got into the working world. That's right. Would you agree? I, I have I, I point back to my early days as an athlete to a lot of things, mm. setting goals, self-awareness, uh, accepting failure, accepting um, success. Um, and swimming is an interesting sport because it really is an individual sport. Yes, I swam for a team, but for the most part, you're competing against yourself and your own goals and what you're trying to accomplish. And there's many different ways that you can win. Um, and so I, my uh, getting in touch with my, my brain and my psyche and my psychology and what drives me um, happened very, very early on. I didn't realize that that might translate into the business world and career and raising a family and all those other things, but it absolutely did. Hmm. So you jump into this company. You're about to turn 30 approximately. And tell me about some of the major challenges, struggles, and unknowns that you faced as you kind of dived in. Well, the biggest one was um, this was my first real senior executive role. I started as a senior vice president running sales and marketing for the Americas. And in a short period of time, I was promoted to president and actually quickly became the CEO successor. We took the company public. Uh, the CEO had a lot of other things going on. He actually didn't really want to be the CEO of the company. He was a major investor, and there was a reason why we had to oust the other CEO when he came in. So I was propelled, propelled to a, a senior executive level pretty early. Wow. Um, it meant I had to act like a senior executive around others that were reporting to me that were clearly older than me and, and more business years of experience. Um, and I'd say that's really when my real leadership skills started getting developed. Um, I wouldn't have made it if they, if they hadn't. I think my personality um, helped a lot. But that's also a time where 
I dialed it up to 11 in terms of workload. I mean, it, the, the company was growing so fast. We went from 5 million one year to 10, 10 to 17, 17 to 27, 27 to 36. We went public along the way. That kind of growth doesn't happen very easily and without a lot of chaos. Yeah, so tell um, me a couple examples of moments where you had just, you were just over the top. It's, you know, it's it's almost like it's the boiling frog syndrome. You know, I just, you dial it up, you dial it up, you dial it up, and you don't know where the limits are. I was a very driven person, you know, never accepted failure. So I can always do more. Like if I could do that, I could do a little more. Like back in swimming, if I broke one of my personal records, okay, that's great. I'd celebrate it for a little bit. Like, okay, now how do I break that record? So... You know, in a way, the bad side of that was I was burning the candle at both ends. I mean, I was working 70 hours a week, and I was traveling 250,000 miles a year, almost Ooh. all of it international. Wait, hold on. So about 70 hours a week, 200-plus thousand miles a year traveling. Yes. And you have three daughters and a wife at home. Yes. How did you balance that? I mean, it, 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 my, there was no balance. No, no, the, the, the word balance did not exist. There, there were, like work-life balance, I was the example of the antithesis of that. The, I was the exact opposite of work-life balance. But the learner in me was being fed so strongly that, you know, it didn't matter. I had to try and optimize on the family side. So what would happen is I would, when I, when I was home, I would really try and dial it up my, my time with the girls. You have to also realize this was before the days of cell phones and this was before the days of having reasonable internet at home. So basically when I came home, I was home. Like there's, there wasn't anything else I could hardly do, right? But Today you, that's different. Yeah, but you had to be wound up from all that hours working, the hours traveling. I mean, I feel like no matter who you are, when you come back from trips like that, your body needs some unwind time. You can't just like turn back on yeah. and just be the family man. Or I don't know. You tell me. No, probably not. Not as much. Near, not nearly as much as I as I should. That was a six year crazy stint in my life. It turned out to be a great success story and whatnot. After that, and it's it's like the boiling frog. Once you get out of the boiling water, if you then touch the boiling water, you realize, wow, that was really really hot. When I left, I told my wife, I'm taking up to a year off. Or until I get itchy to go back, whichever comes first. Do you uh, remember the feelings you had towards the end when you were just like completely done and just burnt out and overwhelmed? While I was in it, I was fully in it mm. all the way to the end. I mean, wow. I just, let's go, let's go, let's go. You have to also realize that was 1997 or 1998, I think, through 2005, which meant we, we went through the dot-com crash. This wasn't just me and how much I wanted to work. It's like, if this company's going to survive, everybody better dial it up to 11 because it was survival mode. And you were the president of the company at the time before was, the sale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I ran all of the America's operation in two or three rounds of layoffs. Uh, I also, you know, ran most of the rest of the company as, as president. I didn't, I didn't run the the entire company. We had a CEO and, and, and some other senior executives. But yeah, it was a very, very difficult time. We came out of the backside of that, so we had some declines. I said we went to 36 million, and I kind of conveniently stopped there. Well, then we went down to 32, and then we had another, and the next year was about 31, and then we got it pointed back up in a more favorable direction. At that point, I knew the company was safe. The learner in me wasn't as excited. I had spent six years in the video conferencing industry. I learned more than I ever wanted to, and thought I would learn. Mm. I was a very recognized figure in the industry. I mean, it was probably one of the 
10 or 20 most known people in the whole industry. It's not a huge industry, but still, I could have leveraged that for a lot of you know, great things, but the learner in me wasn't very excited. So I hit the reset button, decided to jump out and just take up to a year off, reset my batteries, spend time with the family. And after that, I decided I'm, I'm never gonna work 70 hours a week again. There is no way I'm going back to that craziness. And all I had to decide was when was I ready to go back into the workplace and what industry was gonna feed the learner in me. After moving for years at a breakneck pace, Gordon's time away from work forces him to realize some harsh truths about himself. But it also unlocks a new way of thinking, including a visualization technique that allows him to take risks and endure pain others could not. Stick around for that. I'm Ronnie Gani, and you're listening to Fear is a Liar from Gani Media. Did you have some awakening moments during that that year off that that kind of just enlightened you a little bit after you got all through all that fire and that craziness? I guess the revelation of I'm not going to to be successful, I don't have to work that hard. I mean, part of this was I realized I was I had decided to carry the weight of the whole company on my shoulders. I felt like I individually could save this company. You know, I don't know why I thought that. It was kind of like this crazy Superman mentality. And I didn't, I never said that to anybody, but I realized during the time off, I was wondering, why did I work that much? And, and I realized I was trying to individually save the company and make sure it survived when, in, of course, it takes a big team. Um, and so I just thought I wasn't going to do that again. But holding that responsibility on your shoulders really it has to bring a lot of anxiety and stress when things don't go, you know, the way they should, which it seems like they weren't prior to the sale. Mm -hmm. uh, could you describe some of the, you know, maybe one or two examples in, in the midst of all that where you were just, you know, just over it? When things get really chaotic and crazy, uh, I tend to get more calm. I mean, I'm talking about like real chaos. If, if right now an active shooter came in this building and something was happen happening, my style is I would immediately get calm and, and I would start – my brain would go into thinking mode and whatnot. It's just like this natural mechanism that I have and I don't know where it comes from. I was just going to ask, where, where does that keen sort of instinct come from? Because – Generally, that's not natural. Generally, you work into those skills, those yep. mindsets, right? Yep. Which, which, which make you who you are, and actually, uh, in in the world of business, really work to your favor, as I'm sure you experience. Yep. Is it something in your in your history, your background, uh, uh, mentors you might have had? I think I am very, very in tune with my mind, and what I mean is back to swimming. When you work out four and a half hours a day. And uh, you're in the pool, you know, an hour and a half in the morning, two hours in the afternoon. And, and my Christmas holidays meant that we had three workouts a day. Your body just gets torn down so much that you have to deal with coping mechanisms. And one of my coping mechanisms actually was self-hypnosis. I didn't realize it, but I used visualization techniques to, you know, eliminate the pain in my body and ignore, the, ignore how much it was hurting. And, you know, I used to be able to put myself kind of into a semi-hypnotic state, lower my heart rate when I, like if when I would be laying down before I go to bed, I could lower my heart rate and I could hold my breath for three and a half minutes. And I would do it, you know, just 
either for fun or just to just to practice. I would visualize races, and then basically when I would get up and swim a race, I was I was hypnotized. And so I I think maybe I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but I think early early you know when I was going through all that, it just it gave me some tools that maybe later, when things are stressful and chaotic, I realize that's not pain like muscle pain is, but it's another another negative influence on your body that maybe I was more able to cope with than certain people. I Yeah, I mean, it served very well for you throughout the years. Can you recall a time later in your career after you were an athlete and you had to use those techniques? That's a capability that if you don't use it, you lose it. So uh, later in my career, I got back into competitive swimming and for about 15 years or so, I was competing and I competed at a national level, but I wasn't pushing myself anywhere close to that. I mean, I was working out and whatnot, but, and I, I tried actually a few times to see if I could put myself into that kind of visualization, semi-hypnotized state, and I just absolutely could not do it. So I lost that skill. So it was more you um, kind of building that foundation of getting through that and learning these techniques to help you excel in really difficult situations early on that kind of primed you for your future years, would you mm-hmm. say? Absolutely. Yeah, and, and how'd you come across those techniques? You don't just, you know, you don't generally just open up a book or come across someone that teaches you that. How, how'd that come into your life? Uh, it's, it, it's, a, it's a little longer story, but the short version of it is I developed ways of visualizing things in my body when pain would take place to help me eliminate the pain. Um, and visualization actually is a foundation for hypnosis. I didn't know this. I mean, basically the net of it is I would visualize inside my body this valve that was dripping pain into my body cavity, and I would put a cork in that valve. And then as the pain reoccurred, I would replace the cork with, you know, uh, something more substantial and then something more substantial. And then I would encase it in concrete and then I would encase it with the earth and then I would encase it with the universe. And so really what's doing, I found out from my uncle, my uncle was a hypnotist, actually. He used hypnosis to help people uh, stop smoking or, or, or drugs or, you know, other things like that. And when I described to my uncle what I was doing with the visualization, I was just casually, you know, joking about it. He says, oh, you're practicing self-hypnosis. I laughed. He says, no, let me tell you what you're doing. I'm like, oh, wow. He said, let me give you a few tools. So he gave me some tools that I could use in the evening to even make me better at exercising that capability. And, and I used it. I mean, when I would be in a competition and you'd be in the lane next to me and, and your cameraman would be in the lane to the other one, I just, nope, oh, you guys have no chance. I mean, I, I absolutely will beat you because I have this tool where I can turn off the pain in my body and you don't have that. And mm-hmm. so like, if you would start moving ahead of me, I had other, I had other valves in my body. I had one called speed and one called power. So as I'm shutting off the pain, I'm cranking up the speed and power. So it was all visualization. So so you left VCon at the age of like 35, 36. It was around 2005. Yeah. But about five, six years before you left, you got into a pretty interesting project of your own, um, and it was called Shockwave Innovation, where you got involved in angel investing and education for tech startups. Mm-hmm. How did that come about? What drew you to mentoring entrepreneurs at the ground level? A couple things happen. I'd often get asked for advice, writing a resume, writing a business plan, various other things that maybe somebody thought I was a subject matter expert on. And if I would get asked for the same type of advice more than two times in a six-month period of time, I decided to just write it down. So I just kind of type it up into a document because I figured, well, surely I'm going to get asked this again, and I'll just email them the document and say, hey, read this first, and then let's chat. Mm -hmm. 
So that led to me collecting uh, what I called at the time advice documents. I collected, I don't know, a dozen of them, and I thought, well, why not put this up on a website? So I came up with the brand name Shockwave Innovations in a way just as a brand name for publishing some advisory content that I had created. So people were just re randomly reaching out to you for help, guidance, assistance, and you said, not only am I going to write this down, but now I have enough content to kind of just post. And this is back in 2000. Not many people are thinking, hey, I'll just put, post it on a website, I'll that's email right. it, because not, not yeah. a lot of that's happening. That's right. So you put a, put a company name behind it, yeah. and were you planning on advising folks professionally, or was it more just to kind of just to put it out there for folks? At at the time, I didn't know. I wrote it down for convenience because I, I decided just efficiently, from efficiency perspective, we'll just email them the document and then chat with them a little bit. These are people that worked for me or people in kind of in my network usually. The other thing that happened around that same time is some engineers left VCon to start their own startup. This was in Israel. But they quickly learned that they had four different product ideas and they were arguing amongst themselves which one was the best one. And they realized they didn't know how to raise money. So they reached back to me and said, hey, Gordon, would you be our advisor? Would you join our advisory board and help us pick between the product ideas and help us get funded? I decided, well, sure, that would be fun. It's going to feed the learner in me. So I helped them, ended up working with them for about a year and a half, and the experience was hugely rewarding. Just remember, by advising another startup, I could live vicariously through their exercise without taking all the risk, and I could learn something different, a new industry, a new technology area, a new business model. So I decided if I ever had enough money that I didn't have to have a regular day job, I would just spend 100% of my time helping startups. Just advising them and possibly investing in them at the same Maybe, time. You know, I, I hadn't thought about investing, but really just advising and helping. You know, I, I learned along the way also that one of the second driving factors for me is to be an educator and advisor. I got a lot of reward. I was a very mentoring style manager. I always wanted to help my employees develop. So this is helping others, but while feeding the learner in me. So that was another reason to have the Shockwave Innovations. If I was going to get a little bit of equity in a company from being an advisor, well, why not have a brand name for that, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's where Shockwave Innovations got started. Let's take a short breather. When we return, Gordon dives into the world of startup investing in the next phase of his journey. From learner to teacher and back to learner, his role as a mentor and investor is multiplying his impact for countless entrepreneurs starting from the bottom. Stay with us. I'm Ron Gowney, and you're listening to Fear is a Liar from Gowney Media. And that was around 2000, and about uh, 10 to 12 years later, you took it to a whole new level with Capital Factory, which is where we are today. And could you tell me a little bit about how it came together and how you co-founded one of the most active startup accelerators in Texas? So we built a software company here in Austin to $57 million in revenue, um, sold it for $200 million to a Fortune 500. Um, I went over to the Fortune 500 as a senior vice president and served, uh, you know, at that level for about four and a half years. So between the prior exits that I had had, and by the way, the Israeli startup that I advised, they went public in 2009. So I had an IPO as a founding advisor. They they did an IPO at a $200 million valuation. So between taking the Israeli company public, between this IPO of the Israeli startup that I helped. 
um, serving as a senior vice president for four and a half years, which pays good money, yeah. and selling a company for two hundred million dollars. I had the you know the financial means to not work because I had to, but because I wanted to, and. I started making some angel investments. I invested in a company that happened to uh, have gone through an earlier version of Capital Factory's accelerator program when it was just a summer boot camp. There was no physical office. And that got me introduced to Josh Baer. He and I talked and he said, you should definitely be a mentor. I said, great. Perfect, right? I mean, I, I just told you that I wanted to spend all of my time after my regular career helping startups. What better, you know, what better opportunity than to be a mentor at a starting place called Capital Factory. Then he said, I'd like you to help me also figure out how to run a totally different uh, style accelerator program. Mm. So I helped him figure that out. And he said, huh, you want to join as a managing director? So that uh, co-founder status with me in Capital Factory is from the earliest days of of having this physical infrastructure that people know as Capital Factory and a whole new accelerator program. And, you know, I've been here ever since. So it's been about uh, about seven years now, approximately, since that time. Obviously, a Capital Factory has grown and, and really gone through some amazing, amazing milestones to get to where it is today. In addition to that, I'm sure you've heard thousands of pitches from startup founders, young, hungry ones. What are some of the, the most noteworthy fears, anxiety, stresses that you see them have that commonly, as you have heard thousands of pitches? I think every entrepreneur is truly fearful of failure. Um, and they don't handle fear in the way that most people do. If, if, entre- if an entrepreneur has excessive fear factor, they won't get started. Right, that the fear will hold them back from starting this crazy journey. Right, absolutely. So entrepreneurs see fear in a different way. But once they start the journey and they have employees and they have investors that are counting on them, and if the business is hitting hard time, yeah, the fear factor. They they fear that they will have to declare a failure, and they really don't want to do that. And so I in, I interact with a lot of founders that, whether they tell me or not, I can tell. You know, they've only got 30 days of cash left in the bank, and they definitely have fear. And it's an area where I can help them. I mean, myself and other mentors, we're there to help see if we can't resurrect and get it pointed in the right direction. Many, many startup ventures come close to nosing into the ground, and then they recover a little bit, and it happens again. You know, and then eventually maybe they find the right business model or the right product market fit, and they get off to the races. It doesn't always happen that way, though. Could you share uh, a particular example that comes to mind? Obviously, you don't have to share the names or anything, but uh, working with a particular founder that was uh, super stressed, anxious, on the brink of losing the company, and you were able to assist him or her? Assist, yes, in many, many different ways, but I'll give you one that you're maybe not thinking about. Sometimes I am the person that gives the founder the permission to close down the company. In truth, sometimes when I'm sitting with a founder, I'm listening to them, what they're telling me actually is there's no business there. They don't say it in those words. They don't even really want to say that. Yeah, they're holding it back. But I have the magic decoder ring now just with years of experience and helping hundreds of of startups that I can tell that, and I'll assess it. I'll, I'll try and see if I agree that there is not a business there, even with two more dramatic pivots and or whatever, or some kind of funding. Some startups realize they are solving a problem that truly does not need to be solved. Mm-hmm. And they didn't realize that earlier on. And I give them permission to shut it down. And it's amazing the calmness, like, 
Okay. Thank of fresh you. air Thank that you. they thank they, you to hear it from you exactly. because they're not willing to accept it themselves exactly. because they would be having to accept failure on their own and put it on their their they, shoulders. They reach into their personal bank accounts, they take out loans, they sell their car, and they sometimes will do things that are way over and above what you would consider reasonable. Now, I think that's a really good point to touch on there because. I found from from my research and just in general from the outside looking in on a lot of founders that it's not always trying to do something to, to have the business survive, but it's their identity crisis of what they will, how they will be judged by their friends, family, and other founders. Yep. That is so much. The insecurity is so strong that they will go take out loans, like you said, like crazy, crazy stuff like that, as opposed to coming to your individuals like yourself and others who are here to help to say, look, I'm stuck and I don't think I can get out. Yep. And how do you how do you kind of see those situations? Because you've actually been in those cases where you've seen that. You know, I never tell a startup what to do. I don't feel it is my job to tell them to shut it down or go left or go right. I, what I try to do is ask them questions I return their questions with different questions. I tell them stories, and I try and come up with other methods for helping them come up with their own conclusion. Like, no, this truly has to be their decision to shut it down. Like, I would never want them to say, I shut it down because Gordon told me I should shut it down. I don't tell them to shut it down. In an indirect way, I give them permission and, and that sounds weird. It's like I don't have an authority over them. But you, you understand what I say? Permission. Yeah. yeah. I help them understand that. Yeah. If if I were in there, yeah, you know, I've been in your shoes before. I've worked with other founders, and here's what they, you know, here's what they decided to do. Let's let's look at the facts that you're faced with right now. What are the odds that this? What are the odds of that? Do you have any indications that this? Do you have any indications that that? Hmm. Well, if you don't have this and you don't have that and you don't have this and you don't have that, then. You know, what is it that you're seeing right now that would allow you to get to this point and maybe to that point? Do, do you see any? Do you see any chance of this? Do you see any chance of that? And when they're and then their answers to my questions, they finally say, "Huh, I should probably shut it down." Huh? I don't know. It's your decision, you know, to shut it down or not. I, I can't tell you what to do. I'm I'm just asking questions. Hmm. See what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I mean when I say give them permission to shut it down. It's very, very hard for me because I have seen some ventures. You know, my brother actually made one more payroll out of his own bank account. He could not have done that even one more time. So he drew his savings down through multiple payrolls, and then he got the deal with uh, Conoco or Shell for a million-dollar deal. And that led to another thing. That led to another thing. His company then got acquired. He was CTO of that company. Uh, that company got acquired by private equity again. The ultimate acquisition was a $900 million exit to an Italian company. He made a lot of money. What if I had told my brother, I disallow you from taking that last money out of your bank account to make the payroll? So with that said, like, who am I really to tell them to shut it down? But, okay. but I think that's really a really good point because I, I think it, those risky extremes that people have to go to at times that anyone would guide against generally, whether you are uh, a founder with, with 10 years of experience or whether you're early on, they would say, 
don't take that major, major risk. Yep. And only certain people or certain individuals will, and 99% of them or 95% of them will, will fail. It, yep. won't, it won't work. That's right. And that's why just practical guidance always says don't do it. Yep. But there are those select few, like you just mentioned, that do it, face it, and just jump into that unknown, yep. and it works out. And if it doesn't work out, they don't call it failure. They call it it didn't work out. They go try something else. They do it again. It's amazing how real entrepreneurs, when it, when, it, when it fails, they don't use the word failure. They don't say, I failed. They don't say, we failed. They say, it didn't work out. Hmm. I mean, think about the psychological difference. I think uh, entrepreneurs will need to face, uh, face their fear. I mean, uh, build a relationship with your fear. I know that might sound weird, but they need to internalize and understand what fear means to them. And they need to build a relationship with it. Build a relationship means learn how to cope with it. Learn how actually to turn it into a positive thing. I've given you some examples of how I turned fear into a positive thing. But my ex experience is not going to be the same as every other entrepreneur's. You know, build a relationship with your fear. Yeah, I think it's a lot of self-awareness that comes into that. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's uh, recognizing it and then how you're responding to it, that really helps build that relationship with the fear, for me specifically, mm -hmm. and, and helps you um, notice when it starts creeping up on you. And you're, you're, not, you're not crushing the fear. You're not making it completely go away, because mm -hmm. I don't think it ever does. Nope. You're embracing it, you're dancing with it, yep. and you're acknowledging it, rather. Exactly. Um, and, and that's how it has been for me. Yep. I totally agree, and it's a very powerful emotion. If, if each person can understand what it means to them, both good and bad, uh, they can turn it into a positive thing. That's Gordon Darty, president and co-founder of The Capital Factory. These days, he continues to share his decades of experience with up-and-coming startups. All in all, he's advised and seed-funded hundreds of them since he started on this path in the late 90s after leaving IBM and Compaq. His expertise is also displayed in countless articles, videos, and now his latest book, Startup Success, Funding the Early Stages of Your Venture. His three daughters are grown now, and he and his wife make time to travel and relax with each other. A quick shout out to Simon, Frankie, and Stephanie who helped me produce the show. Thank you. To my daughter, Sabrine, and our future counties. I hope you hear this one day and it provides some value on your journey. For our audience, if the show provided a positive takeaway, please subscribe and share with others in your network. Thanks for tuning in to Fear is a Liar where we share how our guests embrace all the fears related to risk, self-doubt, failure, unknowns, what didn't work, and how they dealt with it. Gordon Doherty and Ron Gannon. I'm out.